I'm putting love on the radio, spreading joy everywhere I go. There's no way to hide my hope. Oh, no, this little light of mine. Hey, I'm gonna let it shine. Telling the world to save my soul. The only way I know with love on the radio. Oh, oh. Hello, everybody. I'm Ryan Young, and you're listening to The Ryan Young Show live right now on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM or wherever you're listening to podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Great to have you join me on this Thursday of Hell Week, where we're all working hard here at Hillsdale College right before our finals, where we have to take all the exams and before a much-needed Christmas break. Thank you for joining me. We have a powerful show for you prepared today. We've got a longtime friend and producer of the Rush Limbaugh Show, Bo Snurdly, also that's his um, pseudonym name. His real name is Rick Golden. He'll be joining the show and he's going to talk about the life and the legacy of the King of Talk Radio. He's also the author of the latest book, Rush on the Radio. Bo Snurdly is joining the show in the second half. You don't want to miss it. Plus, we're going to be talking about what's taking place right now in the news from um, the potential of overturning Roe v. Wade at the Supreme Court. We'll talk a little bit about that. Plus, a major sex trafficking case right now uh, that the news media isn't really talking about. You're going to want to stay tuned. I'm Ryan Young, and this is The Ryan Young Show, live right now on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Hey, guess what day it is? Oh, come on. I know you can hear me. Mike, 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 Mike. What day is it, Mike? (laughs) Leslie, guess what today is? Woo-hoo! All right, so I told you it was Thursday. It's also December 2nd. If you can believe it, we are already in December. But today is also an important holiday. It's the International Day for the Abolition of Slavery. And what this holiday focuses on is eradicating modern forms of slavery like like trafficking, sex trafficking, exploitation, child labor, forced marriage, forced recruitment of children into armed conflict. And this day is always observed on December 2nd, which marks the same date that the UN Convention for the Suppression of the Traffic in Persons and the Exploitation of the Prostitution prostitution of others was adopted by its member states on December 2nd, 1949, and it is expected to be observed by governments, organizations, and people all around the world as a day specifically set aside to rebuke all forms of modern-day slavery that still exist today. And some of those ones that we can think about are sex slavery as well as sexual exploitation. Um, And in, in many cases, you could even think of abortion in that case. Anyways, we're going we're gonna to be trying to, to, to relate some of the news happening today to the holiday, uh, so that way we, we can really address it fully. And perhaps one of the, the most important stories right now that, that you've been paying attention to is what's taking place at the Supreme Court. If you watched the news yesterday, you saw a lot of different um, college-age students and protesters were at the Supreme Court, um, both pro-life and pro-choice people were there arguing um, and, and holding up signs, some with Bible verses and, and some on the other side and what they're doing is they're basically they're they're standing up for what they believe uh is what what should happen regarding this abortion case and the um the mississippi solicitor general his name is scott stewart he spoke yesterday and he's the one really bringing this case and his opening statement i want to read a quote from it because i think it's pretty powerful Quote, they have no basis in the Constitution. They have no home in our history or traditions. They've damaged the democratic process. They've choked off compromise. 
They've, cu- they've poisoned the law. For 50 years, they've kept this court at the center of a political battle that it can never resolve. And 50 years on, they stand alone. Nowhere else does this court recognize a right to end a human life. And that was the Mississippi Solicitor General, Scott Stewart, in, in what's taking place right now in the case yesterday. And I want to give you five takeaways um, because this, does, this case does have the, the implication to potentially overturn Roe v. Wade as well as Planned Parenthood ver- versus Casey. Um, th- these are what are, are technically could severely restrict um, or, or even potentially prevent states from um, having abortions altogether. Uh, one of the major takeaways, Breyer asks why the court should disregard a stare decisis to overrule Roe v. Wade. Justice Stephen Breyer asked Mississippi Solicitor General Scott Stewart, who was arguing the case for the state of Mississippi, like we said, um, why they have the ability, why they should disregard a legal principle in which the court generally follows its previous rulings by overturning Roe v. Wade. And um, Breyer says this this is rare. They call it a, a watershed. Why? Because the country is divided, because feelings are running high. And yet the country, for better, better or for worse, decided to resolve their differences by this court, laying down a constitutional principle in this case. And, and Stewart's response is pretty important. He says, by saying that much has changed in the years since Roe was decided, arguing that states should be allowed to account for new developments. Quote, the last 30 years, workability, developments in the law, factual developments that states can't account for uh, should basically allow this case to be reheard. And, and that's why it, there, there is that, that idea that the, these justices could potentially overturn it. Because of the new information presented, latest science about potentially the life beginning at the heartbeat, and on it goes. And I know this is an important issue for you, uh, for, for all Christians, really, and even those that aren't Christians, about the right uh, to life and the right to choice and, and this whole kind of moral uh, conflict and debate here. And obviously, I side on the pro-life stance. I believe that, that life does begin at, at at um, the heartbeat, I think that's a pretty pretty simple idea there. That once a heartbeat is detected, that that's a sign of life, and and that's when I believe uh, the right of that individual in the womb should be protected. And, and that's really h- how simple I would put it. Um, another takeaway: Chief Justice Roberts um, he was worried about the fate of other precedents if court if the court overturned Roe v. Wade. He he said. Um, he, he was a little hesitant to overturn the precedent. He was asking if overturning it would lead to other decisions in the future. Quote, there are a lot of cases around the time of Roe, not of that magnitude, but the same type of analysis that 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 went exactly the sort of things we today would say were erroneous. If we look at it from today's perspective, it's going to be a long list of cases that we're going to say were wrongly decided. Which I think is an interesting point Roberts makes here. I mean, if if we today believe that cases back then were wrongly decided, shouldn't they? Shouldn't that not stop us from overturning them? Shouldn't they still be overturned if new evidence presents itself? It's like if you put it this way: if someone gets convicted of a crime and, and they get put in prison for life or, or however long, and then new evidence comes out and it shows that the individual that has been in prison for the last 20 years wasn't in fact guilty of that crime. Don't you believe that case should be retried? And to me, I think it's kind of common sense here. If new evidence becomes available, the last thing that our chief justice on the Supreme Court should be worrying is, oh, a long list of stuff that we then have to overturn. 
it's their duty to overturn cases that new evidence arises that shows that something went wrong and that there was a wrong decision made in the past. Don't you agree? Well, Stewart replied that, quote, other controversial areas or once controversial areas are quite settled, clear rules, and don't have these considerations against them. So he took the opposite side. He said, well, there are issues um, that are controversial areas, but those have all been settled. We don't have to worry about those. We're talking about abortion. And I get what he did there, but I don't know. I don't know which is a stronger argument. The one I just made that if there's controversial arguments and there's new evidence that's amounted to retry the case would be their duty or saying that, yeah, there are controversial issues, but we're not worrying about that. I don't know. A third important takeaway from the case so far, Chief Justice Roberts questions why 15 weeks isn't enough time to choose whether to abort a baby. So he argued, he, he, He questioned the lawyers arguing in favor of striking down the law about why 15 weeks is not enough. He says, quote, if you think that the issue is one of choice, that women should have a choice to terminate their pregnancy, that supposes that there is a point at which they've had the fair choice and the opportunity to choose. Robert said, and why would 15 weeks be an inappropriate line? Viability, it seems to me, doesn't have anything to do with choice. But if it really is an issue about choice, why is 15 weeks not enough time? And the the lawyer who is arguing for the Center for Reproductive Rights countered that, quote, allowing the Mississippi law to stand would create a, quote, slippery slope that would lead states to pass even more restrictive abortion laws. And again, a, a weird argument there that somehow... 15 weeks isn't enough for them to choose and that's this 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 law would create a slippery slope. Another quote from her, quote, the state has conceded that some women will not be able to obtain an abortion before 15 weeks and this law will bar them from doing so. Without viability, there will be no stopping point. States will rush to ban abortion at virtually any point in pregnancy. And then Roberts well, well, a very good point he made was that most countries already do ban abortions after 15 weeks. And the only countries that, that don't right now are actually, if you can believe this, North Korea and China. So that, that's where the U.S. is currently standing. What countries in, in the world allow abortion after 15 weeks? North Korea, China, in the U.S. Huh, that should make you wonder, why is the U.S. with North Korea and China on this issue? It seems to me like that's a pretty bad, bad agreement. Justice Samuel Alito took aim at a pro-choice lawyer over whether viability was a logical legal threshold for when abortion should be prohibited. Quote, what would you say to the argument that has been made many times by people who are pro-choice and pro-life that the line really doesn't make any sense? That it is, as Justice Blackman himself described it, arbitrary. She responded, in some people's view, it doesn't matter, doesn't, it doesn't, Your Honor. It is principled because in order the, in ordering the interests at stake, the court had to set a line between conception and birth. And Kavanaugh and, and Breyer, they clashed on Supreme Court precedent. And that's basically where we stand right now. We'll see what all takes place here. It's something to continue to pray about. Something to be aware of. The potential for overturning Roe v. Wade 
and, and making abortions a lot more difficult to get and potentially even illegal in America. And, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of innocent babies die every year in America and all around the world because of abortion. And there are a lot of moral qualms with this. But it seems to me you almost have to have a, a black or white view. You can't give a lot of exceptions. And, and so I've wrestled with this issue about, well, if a, if a young girl is raped and gets pregnant, should she be forced into delivering that child? If a minor, a young girl gets pregnant, should she be forced into giving her, giving that child, giving birth to that child? And so you begin to want to create almost kind of an exception to the rule. Well, if she's a minor, then yeah, I understand if it's in this much time. And if she was raped, then yeah, I get it. Or if whatever happened here, then, and it, I don't know, you kind of fall into this, this kind of never ending. I've got to create these different exceptions because there's all these different moral qualms. And I understand if you do that because I've, I've wrestled with it myself. I've thought to myself, well, if it's a young girl that got raped, I understand if, if she, she, she should get an abortion and, and whatnot. And this is a touchy issue. But it, after thinking about it more, you almost have to just take a stance. Killing an unborn baby, killing a baby is wrong. It's, a, it's, not, it's sinful. It's immoral. And that should be the end of it right there. Killing a life is immoral. And I know it might seem like you might be punishing the victim. And so I, I wrestle with the issue too, and, and, and I understand if you do, but it's something to, to think about and, and think about your own stance on this issue. Another important story right now in the news that we're going to talk about a little bit is this, this major sex trafficking case that, that's taking place right now with Gillian Maxwell. I don't know if I pronounced her right, her name right, but she's connected to Jeffrey Epstein. She was kind of his point person. They were they were kind of uh, buddies in, in a lot of ways. And so far, just the first day of the Gillian Maxwell trial, it started on Tuesday. And just on the first day, several jurors were reportedly missing. We had the CEO of Twitter resign. The CFO of Walmart resigned. The CEO of CNBC resigns and Chris Cuomo is indefinitely suspended from CNN. And, you know, the mainstream media doesn't tie these pieces together and these have to all be just, you know, coincidences. And so there's a lot of fishy stuff already taking place in this, this Gillian Maxwell trial uh, questioning Jeffrey Epstein. And we saw the pilot of Jeffrey Epstein recently testified and he named names. He named specific names of people that were on the plane to Jeffrey Epstein's island. The man's name is Lawrence Paul Vazowski Jr. He took the stand Tuesday in this sex trafficking trial. And so right now, Maxwell, Gillian Maxwell, is being accused of recruiting and grooming girls for Epstein to sexually abuse from 1994 to at least 2004. She's denying the charges and... um the list of celebrities and, and, and people that we know that the pilot named is pretty shocking. So he named actor Kevin Spacey as being someone that was on pa a passenger on Epstein's plane. And what's interesting about that one is if you know anything about Kevin Spacey, he has already been accused of sexually assaulting minors in multiple lawsuits. 
One was filed by an, another actor. And, and both of these allegations in, include that this, this actor, Kevin Spacely, sexually assaulted them in separate incidences when they were only 14 years old. Comedian and actor Chris Tucker was also named as being on Epstein's plane. And what's interesting there is in 2005, Tucker testified in Michael Jackson's child molestation trial and called the accuser cunning. Interesting that he was also already tied up in another lawsuit there. The pilot of Epstein also named Britain's Prince Andrew, Queen Elizabeth's second son. And we already have an accuser that states that when she was a teenager, she was sexually assaulted by Prince Andrew. And obviously, Prince Andrew denies these allegations. And then the pilot also named, if you're ready for this, U.S. President Bill Clinton, as well as U.S. President Donald Trump, also naming Senator George Mitchell and John Glenn, and then a violinist, Itzka Perlman, And so we see Bill Clinton and Donald Trump were named as being on Jeffrey Epstein's plane as well. And so you you have every potential reason to believe that the the pilot isn't lying, obviously. But but we don't know whether or not they engaged in sexual behavior. We don't know that for any of these people. But it is definitely not a good thing to be named as being one of the individuals who flew with Jeffrey Epstein, a, a known sex trafficker, sexual, minor sexual abuser. And so we'll see how this case unfolds here as well. But it's something to keep your eye on and something to be aware of that there seems to be a lot of suspicion already surrounding it. Where we see jurors going missing and not appearing in court. We see all sorts of important people from the CEO of Twitter to the CFO of Walmart to the CEO of CNBC resigning. And then the final point I want to make here. So the judge in the case is an Obama appointee. And this Obama appointee judge was recently just promoted by Joe Biden. And then this is probably the most shocking bit of information. The prosecutor in the case who's prosecuting Gillian Maxwell in this Jeffrey Epstein sexual abuse trial is the former FBI directors, James Comey's daughter. And we know James Comey is known to be um, a rat pretty much. He, he, he's messed up. He's done a lot of messed up things. And so we know he's a deep state leftist. And now we've got his daughter prosecuting one of the most important sexual abuse trials pretty much of all time that has implications to tie up the Clinton family as well as many other American celebrities and worldwide celebrities, including the Prince Andrew, Queen Elizabeth's son. So we, we, don't, we don't have cameras allowed in the courtroom, just so you're aware, because, quote, the material is too much sensational content. No reporters are allowed in the courtroom as well because of, quote, too much sensational content. And we're supposed to believe that everything that I've just told you is all coincidence, is all um, not important. And so the mainstream media barely talks about this trial. But I want you to pay attention. I want you to research it. And I want you to try to, to, 
to keep your mind focused on it and share this story with others because it's important. And we don't want the mainstream media to be able to mislead us or hide information from us because they seem to do that. They seem to have a coordinated plan to keep specific stories out of the press from anything to do with Hunter Biden and the Clinton family and so much other issues. So stay aware, be aware of what's taking place in this trial. And I I think we'll, we'll see what unfolds in both this abortion case and in the case with Gillian Maxwell and the Jeffrey Epstein sexual abuse. Coming up in the second half of the show, we've got Bo Snerdly. He's going to be joining us to talk about the life and legacy of Rush Limbaugh. And, you know, I got to tell you, Rush Limbaugh has been a huge inspiration for me. I've been able to do this radio show here at Hillsdale College, and I've learned a lot about how to do radio and so much other beneficial things, how to grow listeners. And I've, I've become friends with a lot of my listeners of the show, including maybe you that's listening right now. And I really appreciate that. You can find the show, The Ryan Young Show, wherever you listen to podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, as well as Anchor and and iHeart. And really anywhere you listen, you can find it. And I would encourage you to subscribe, maybe leave a review so that way more people can find the show, as well as feel free to reach out to me. My email is ryoung at hillsdale.edu, ryoung at hillsdale.edu. And then you can connect with me on Instagram at real. Ryan M. Young, at Real Ryan M. Young, and I'd love to hear from you. We can talk about anything. You can give me ideas for the show. And I want to tell you, the show will not be going away. We're going to try to continue to do this as much as possible, Tuesdays and Thursdays, potentially. We'll we'll see how the schedule goes next semester. So you can always listen to it on any of the podcast platforms, as well as on my Instagram page. I am Ryan Young, and this is The Ryan Young Show, live right now on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about the life and legacy of the king of talk radio, Rush Limbaugh, with his producer, Bo Snerdly. We'll be right back. All right, everybody, welcome back to The Ryan Young Show. I'm Ryan Young, live right now on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, or wherever you're listening to podcasts. Joining me now is James Golden, or better known as the great Bo Snerdly, longtime friend and producer of The Rush Limbaugh Show. He's here to talk about the life and legacy of the king of talk radio. He's the author of Rush on the Radio. Mr. Snerdly, it's great to have you on the show. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. I want to spend our time today giving you the opportunity to share some personal stories about working alongside Rush uh, and maybe even things that you've never shared before uh, to anyone. Um, To start, how did you come to work for Rush as his producer? Well, I had been in radio quite a while. I I had a career that was, I guess, almost 20 years in the business before I met Rush. I guess I'm aging myself. But I started young. As Rush did, I walked into a radio station when I was 14 years old in New York. My cousin was a disc jockey, and the first day I walked in, I knew I wanted to be in radio. So many years later, um, uh, I ended up at 
as the music director at WABC when it was still the iconic uh, music radio station in the world. And I produced their very last music show and then went into another studio and produced their very first talk show. The uh, I was at WABC when Rush came. The arrangement then was that um, WABC would provide Rush with the call screener and the engineer. So within a few months, I was rotated on his show, of him starting the show, and um, of course never left. When we clicked and one thing led to another, and I ended up, uh, over a period of time, transitioning out of being a, an employee of ABC and being uh, full-time with Rush. Okay, so did he pick you to work work on the show, or was that a kind of an arrangement, or were you friends beforehand? How'd that all uh, unfold? We were friends beforehand. I met Rush the first day he was in New York. Okay. Um, he, I met him outside, actually, of ABC headquarters. He was with uh, the former president of ABC Networks, Ed McLaughlin, who was his business partner when he first syndicated one of the four um, business partners that first syndicated the Rush Limbaugh show. So I met him as he was coming in his first day in New York, wasn't working on the show at that point. Um, before I started working on the show, I was, uh, I was, uh, you know, bringing back stories to Rush. Rush had a, a unique show even then. Everybody knew that Rush was something special. From the moment he did his first show, there was a different energy about him. The show was different than anything most people had ever heard. It was fun. It was lively. He was an amazing broadcaster. He just came prepared um, like no other broadcaster before him. And the show took off like a rocket. As I said, I was rotated by arrangement, the arrangement of his deal on with, with them. And once on the show, though, he and I just really clicked. And the rest was history. Wow. When you first met him, how was he? Did he ever change when he became more famous? I know we see today celebrities, when they get that stardom, uh, their attitudes start to change. I, I kind of want to get that picture working one-on-one -on -one with him. Well, everybody changes as they grow older. You know, that's just part of the aging process. We all change. Mm -hmm. But did the, basis, did the basics of the fundamentals of who he was as a person change? No. Rush was, before he was... Um, even before he was a household name, before he became very wealthy in the business, he always had a generous heart. I have a story in the book um, about his own generosity toward me at a, at a certain moment. Um, and, but one thing about Rush, he asked people never to reveal his generosity to them. And so we st we're still getting stories today. I'm still hearing from people today that have stories of how generous Rush was to them on a particular occasion. And nobody knew it. He always was, was quiet. And that, that maintained throughout uh, throughout his entire career. Rush was a gentleman. He was so polite. He was always polite. Um, having been with him for almost 30, 30 years, you know, you really get to see a person. And you see how people and how he treats other people. It was always with respect. It was always with appreciation. I mean, you could do the smallest thing for us. Bring him a cup of coffee or something. And he would never fail to look you in the eye and say, thank you, sir, thank you, ma'am, or whatever it is. Wow. Um, he was always gracious. He was always just incredibly well-mannered. Now, that's not to say he didn't have moments of temper. We all do, especially when you're working in a highly charged environment. Now, you screw up on the show, you might get a flash of temper. But that is just performance temper. That's not 
something that uh, I would consider to be a character flaw. Mm -hmm. Did he change? We all change. We, we mature. Certain things we have less tolerance for. I think over the years, probably, um, you know, when, when, when you're attacked as much as Rush is, after a while, he just started ignoring the, the attackers um, and the, the haters. And there are plenty out there on the left. One of the things that Rush said early on was he had never been called these horrible names that he was called before he became a household name, before he really started impacting American product. Nobody called him a racist because he wasn't one and, and never had those kind of tendencies. But that's the standard political playbook that we live with and operate under, where the left, the only, it seems they can't argue with one ideas, especially someone that could articulate conservatism as, as, as well as Rush did and be so persuasive. And so what the left did is to just focus on attacking him with, with ad hominem attacks that were totally baseless. And I think over the years, if anything changed, his tolerance level for that changed. He wouldn't respond to it. He just he started ignoring it mm -hmm. and, um, and, and had a happy life to the extent that he did in spite of all of that. Well, I, I'd have to say, you being his producer for over 30 years, I, uh, that, that right there completely annihilates the whole Russ is a racist narrative, in my opinion. Look, we had a diverse staff. Mm -hmm. um, we had people on our staff that were um, involved with same-sex relationships. We had, um, I'm sure, liberals on the staff because there was not a litmus test for anything. We had people from every race you can name, um, you know, it's, we had a diverse staff, and the thing about all of us is, once most people came to work with Rush, they never left. Wow. You could count the number of people that left. I left for a brief while, but a two- or three-year period, because I wanted to try something new back when streaming media was out. I wanted to learn about it. But even then, I maintained a relationship with the show and still worked part-time with it, and then I came back, of course. But most people never left at all. Because they were treated so well, Rush was an amazing boss. I mean, he hired you because you were talented, and he would only hire people that were talented and that knew what they were doing, that were good at whatever it was that he brought them in to do. And then he'd let you alone. It's just do your job. We didn't have endless staff meetings. We didn't have any of that stuff. It was just come to work, do your job. We all had one objective which was to do our job to the best that we could so that we could please our boss, who was Rush. Mm -hmm. He instituted and inculcated an atmosphere of excellence. And he did that because he was serious about being the very best that he could be. His show prep time was legendary. The amount of time he spent doing show prep for each show, it never wavered. And, and, and there are a lot of people in the entertainment business, once they reach a certain level of success, they hire people to fill in some of those gaps. That wasn't Rush. Rush still spent hours and hours each day doing show prep, prepping for his next show. In fact, some days within two or three hours after the show was over, if we were still hanging in the studio and Rush was gone, you could hear his printer start going off. <laughs> and he's already prepping for the next day's show. Wow. Um, so his work ethic was incredible. He deserved every measure of success that he got because he worked for it and he earned it. 
what was your role in helping him to prepare for the show? Did you bring important stories to him? And what was that dialogue like in between commercial breaks, one-on-one? The dialogue was, I mean, we'd talk about anything. If I had a question or something, or, hey, Russ, did you see this? Or whatever it was, or sometimes he'd ask a question, or sometimes during the break, you could tell he didn't want to be bothered. He was listening to something. Or he was doing, you know, you get to know a person and you get to read them after a period of time. So it was just a very comfortable relationship. There were four of us in the studio with him in Florida. Most of our crew worked remotely from New York or worked from other areas. But the four in in, uh, Florida, it was me. It was uh, Dawn Bachinski, who was our our, um, stenographer, who captured everything in real time that was being said, because, of course, Russia was completely deaf, and and the only way that he could hear was with his cochlear implants, which is amazing. I mean, this man did the show completely deaf longer than he did it with hearing. Wow. And, and, and maintained um, a growth trajectory through all the years that he did the show. The show just kept growing. It's absolutely astounding. It's unheard of in broadcasting. And then there was Brian Johnson, who was the engineer that we had down here. So it would be the three of us in with Rush every day. And we became like our own little family. But then the larger EIB family were those that were working in New York, those who were working remotely, like the Limbaugh letter. They spread out over several states. And it was really all of us. It was a tight-knit group, mm-hmm. um, this EIB family. And... Any any one of us could have written the book that I that I wrote, because we all had a few things in common. We all wanted to be excellent at what we did. We all loved Rush. And let me just make a note about producing. I did not produce Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh produced himself. I produced the show when we had guest hosts and when we had others come in. Yes, I would submit stories to Rush every day, and that's one of the things he trusted me to do. And most of the time... He, those stories wouldn't get used because he had already seen them. Now, on occasion, there were stories that I did give him, or and he would share. And sometimes he'd you know, say, hey, Snurdy brought me this story, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And that was a privilege that I had, that I could share um, stuff with him. But Russ was always incredibly well-prepared to do uh, the show himself. This is a guy who has done a show for three hours without taking a call. Yep. And he's done it multiple times. He came so prepared to do this show when he had the talent to do it. Um, and he was just, in, in a very simple word, he was just simply the, the GOAT. He was the greatest yep. of all time at what he did, which is why he had such tremendous impact, not only in the radio sphere of media, but he transformed the landscape of American media. Yeah. There would be no Fox News if they weren't rushed first. He he paved the way for that. The the person that brought Fox News from zero to in, from its infancy, who started it with under the direction, of course, of Rupert Murdoch, was Roger Ailes, who was the executive producer of Rush Limbaugh, the television show. Before that, he saw the vacuum in the media, and and Roger was able to take advantage of that and grow Fox News. Uh, the conservative publishing world would not have be where it is now with massive imprints if it were not for the success of Russia's two books, selling multi-million each time. 
The Limbaugh Letter was the most widely read political newsletter in the country. Today, there are a plethora of conservative print publications. That audience was expanded because of Rush Limbaugh. The number of people who self-identified as conservatives grew exponentially under Rush. His impact was larger than life. He had he impacted almost every era of the media that existed when he began his syndicated show, and he impacted American culture and American politics in ways that no singular other person has. Right. Well, I, do you think in large part that's due to the fact that he transformed kind of the stodgy conservative talk radio into something that was more thrilling uh, and, and even sometimes shocking, perhaps? Well, what was talk radio before Rush? I mean, it was a few hundred stations that were doing talk. Right. By the time Rush came on and was successful, that grew into thousands of stations. So he didn't transform. He created a new medium. Mm-hmm. His style of broadcasting allowed a new wave of talk radio to begin. It's not much that, so much that he... And yes, there were talkers before. <clears throat> there were people like Bob Grant in New York, Barry Farber, who I've had the pleasure of knowing both of them, by the way, and, and working with both of them in the past. Um, and, and there were some others that were doing talk, but there was nobody that did national, that did it nationally, mm-hmm. that had the entire nation in terms of the radio audience that was available listening, like Rush. Yeah. That was new. The, the growth from when he first started from under 50 stations to then over 600 stations, this was a truly national show that almost anywhere in America you could turn into, and in any market, you could find Rush Limbaugh's show when it was on the air. Well, and even now, there are a lot of shows that say they're syndicated that don't have that kind of reach. You know, they yeah. have maybe the top 20 markets, maybe maybe stations in, in 30 markets, but they don't saturate the country like Rush did. Mm-hmm. That was incredible. If you had to pick a favorite memory uh, of Rush over the 30 years that you worked with him and beyond, um, what would it be if you could pick one? Uh, that's, that's, too, that's tough. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Because there were so many. Um, he Look, you know, and a lot of, uh, maybe, maybe there was one, and I'm not going to talk about it that much, but during this last year, you know, we were, the last year of Russia's life, we were separated uh, by him, um, by glass, because, of course, while he was sick, uh, there was, uh, the COVID was raging throughout the country. And so none of us could take a chance on infecting Russia with anything while he was going through treatment. Mm-hmm. Well, we're coming up on the Christmas season. Last year, right before Christmas, Rush had the three of us, Brian, Dawn, and me, come into the control room for the first time since he had be- begun his treatment. And this was the first contact we were able to have with him physical with, with uh, that year. And that was truly special. We wanted to share Christmas with each other like we, and, and, and it was, and it was just really special. It was really emotional mm-hmm. for, for us to be in there with Rush during that period. 
And and that was the last Christmas that we would spend with Russians. So I, I'd say that that memory is one that stands out for me. Yeah, that's a powerful one. Thank you for sharing that with us. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, the time where, while you were the call screener, uh, you probably dealt with some pretty crazy stories about callers as well during your time. Um, what was it like to screen the calls for the, really the most popular talk show in the nation for all these years? It was demanding. You know, I didn't. I hated to get it wrong. I hated to come up with a, a caller that didn't bring their A-game to the table. And, of course, it happens sometimes, but not often. So when you got when I got through screening after three hours, I felt like I had been in battle. I talked to many people. I talked to I don't know how many people a day. I think we did a calculation when I, I was writing the book and figured that over the course of my career, I probably talked to close to a million people on the phone. Wow. Um, but it it I don't want to over dramatize. Look, I came prepared to do this job. Right. Mm-hmm. I was a producer for years before I was on with Rush. I always took the call screening part of the job as a producer and, quote-unquote, seriously, um, because I knew the impact that it could have for a show. And that's one of the reasons I think that Rush and I click so well is because I, I took seriously what he took seriously, the fact that every aspect of the show was serious, from the call screening on, and it made a difference in the final presentation of the show. Mm-hmm. So how was it? I mean... It's something that you give your full energy to. It's something that you want to do exceptionally well. And I did that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was what I would it was what I was there to do. I mean, I also for many years um, did my own on air show on the weekend for WABC, and it was a highly rated show. I'm back at WABC, by the way, now doing six days a week on the air. Wow, um, and this is a business that I studied. I wanted to be in since I was young. I studied to be in, meaning I paid my dues. You, when you're good at radio, it's not like you're going to go to some course and they're going to teach you how to be great at radio. Right. That They can give you the basics of what it takes to do a show. They can give you the basics of coursework can kind of frame for you what the industry is like, what the business of the industry is like, and all the rest of it. But it can't make you good. You either have to, when when you are an employee at a radio station, whether you're on the air or whether you're a behind-the-scenes, quote-unquote, talent like a producer, it takes effort and determination to do it well. Mm -hmm. And the more you bring to it, that is excellent, the better the end product is going to be. But that's something that can't be taught. So I would say working with Rush, yes, I will always, it's the blessing of my life to work with the greatest broadcaster of all time in America. That was certainly a blessing. But I came well prepared for it because I was just as serious about this business and about being excellent at it as Rush was. And that's why we clicked. Right. I have been a fan of radio since I was 14 years old and first walked into a radio station. And just like he knew, well, he knew a bit younger. He knew when he was six years old that he wanted to be in radio. Mm-hmm. So it's incredible. It's like anything else. If you really want to succeed at something and you're really good at something, very rarely, um, it's not luck. 
there's a lot of effort that goes into becoming excellent at something. And the more, it doesn't matter what your job, you could be a producer, you could be doing sales, you could be doing uh, whatever it is in this broadcast industry. There's an opportunity to be excellent and to shine at it. Yes. Well, right now there's a giant hole left in the radio industry since his passing, and I know the American people are desperate to hear the truth. Uh, for the final question, what what advice do you think Rush would give right now to the American people that are dealing with uh, these vaccine mandates or critical race theory in schools and everything taking place? To stay optimistic and to, and to, to continue to be optimistic that America is a great country and the best days of America have not yet happened. Mm-hmm. Rush was an incredibly optimistic person. And I think that's one of the reasons why he attracted such a vast, um, attracted such a vast audience. And I think that that, that spirit of optimism that Rush gave is still um, needed. And I think the more people remain optimistic about America and our future, the more comfort that they will take even when we're going through the kind of turbulence that we're going through with the Biden administration. The Biden administration is not America's final administration. It will pass. And we have to keep our eyes on the prize, which is making sure that America remains a great republic. It is a fight. And it it, has, it is a battle that has been happening for four centuries and hopefully will continue to happen for centuries more. So, be a happy warrior in it and be optimistic. And and that, I think, is how Rush led his life. And I'm sure that that if he was still here on the radio, he would be just as optimistic as he always has been. Mm-hmm. Mr. Snurdly, James, it was great to have you on the show. And I know so many people are eager to read your new book, Rush on the Radio. And we appreciate you taking the time today to talk with us. Thank you. You've been listening to The Ryan Young Show live right now on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Have a beautiful and a blessed day.